The Land Bulletin Podcast is sponsored by Elk Creek Ranch, a one-of-a-kind private sporting community situated along the banks of the esteemed White River outside Meeker, Colorado. Member owner opportunities are available. Welcome to the Land Bulletin Podcast, where we discuss a wide range of topics impacting landowners, ranchers, and future land buyers. I'm your host, Haley Murr. Fly fishing properties have always been highly sought after by buyers, and even more so today. In part two of a two-part series, we'll revisit my chat with the founder of Murr Ranch Group, Ken Murr, and fly fishing property expert, Daniel Carter, to explore valuations of fly fishing properties further and review other issues impacting this type of property. Let's see what we discovered. I know you guys have both had a lot of experience with fly fishing properties in general and dealing with water and drought and all those things. In your experience, have you worked on some ranches in the past or projects where they were able to mitigate some of this as it affects land value, water, all of that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways, main ways that I think you can, that landowners can mitigate. Um, and, And this again, ties back into that valuation question. Like one thing that's always a question on a buyer's mind is how do I, how do I build value? Right. I mean, I want to buy this ranch and I want to make it better. I want to increase what it's worth, not only to me personally, but down the line when I might want to sell it, the assets worth more than when I bought it. So how do I, how do I enhance that value? Well, you know, stream restoration projects have become a major way in which uh, landowners are doing that. And a stream restoration project is essentially a, a way in which you bring in a water engineer and you're actually changing how the flow of the, the stream is throughout the property. So you might be making more habitat, deeper holes, helping there to be more oxygen coming through the water. So you know, might you might have you might build a, a shallow run where you know the water is more turbulent, getting more oxygenated, and then that run is dumping into a deeper pool. So now there's oxygenated water dumping into a deeper pool that in low flows creates habitat for fish to basically be in during the low flow event. And not only can they be there, but oxygenated water is coming into that piece of water. So it's become something, you know, stream restoration has been around for a long time, but I think a lot more of it is, is, uh, is happening this day and age in the last decade to try to mitigate against drought and and um, and to try to enhance value on ranches. And just for the the viewers out there too, when you're referring to this, you're not talking about like John Dutton when he exploded yeah. the river and diverted it to a different part. I just want <laughs> people to be clear that's not yeah, that's not a thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's make that very clear. Hollywood thing. <laughs> like Pass Creek Ranch, if um, up in Summit County, we have a listing up there where. A lot of money and expertise was put into that stretch of the river, and uh, and, and I'll tell you, there are so many you know hydrologists and consultants out there, you know, who are fabulous at that, and they understand kind of the hydrology of the water and what the fish and the habitat needs, and they have to look at those flows. In that particular situation, I think we have, you know, it's a bit of a controlled flow on the Blue River because you do have a dam above it. And, and but still, when you get into low flows, you'd like to have 
those uh, those improvements made. And heck, that river goes all the way up, you know, just below Poulter Jones and some of his place down, but you know, just above Kremlin, where mm-hmm. amazing habitat. I mean, some of these guys, you know, I don't know what he paid, but there are some situations where they're paying like a million dollars a mile or so. And this is private money, especially in Colorado. Now, Daniel can speak to Montana. That's a little different structure again, because it has to deal with the access laws, but they're paying a lot of money uh, and these private people because they do have private rights. And so they are trying to enhance their private property by enhancing the, the, the value of the fishery. Yeah. I, I think, you know, all these, all these topics kind of tie into one another, right? If, if you're right. improving the value of your stream, um, then you are improving that per linear mile valuation component of your ranch. You know, there, there are certainly different ways to do stream restoration there. You know, there's even another term out there called stream enhancement, which, you know, that's kind of creating things that might not exist otherwise in the stream naturally, as far as I, that's my opinion. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a stream restoration fan than I am a stream enhancement fan trying to provide naturally occurring th- things that you might see naturally occurring in the river and in the ecosystem elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, Ken brings up a really good point as to, you know, how these restoration projects are done throughout the Intermountain West. You know, places like Wyoming and Colorado are, you see a lot of the stream restoration being done with private dollars, right? The landowners are, for the most part, footing the bill to do this because they're improving the value of their property. There are programs out there where you know, uh, organizations like Trout Unlimited might contribute uh, to a project that a landowner is taking under. But the reason for that is because they're they're improving the fishery overall outside of that landowner's boundaries. You're still providing habitat for fish that may move in and out of that area throughout the year. So you see a lot of, you know, in those kind of privatized states, you see a lot of privately funded mitigation and restoration in those states like Montana and Oregon, Idaho, you see a lot more of these projects, especially on the larger rivers, you know, let's say the Madison River, the Yellowstone River in Montana, the the Weber River, Weber River in Utah, you know, the Snake River in Oregon, all of those, all of those rivers have had publicly funded restoration projects occur. And they're doing very similar things. They're trying to mitigate against low flow years and drought, but they're also trying to create more fish habitat because in those states, the state commerce and economy revolves a lot around being able to you know, bring in tourism for fly fishing and whitewater rafting and so forth. So you see different kind of sources for, for this restoration to happen, but it is happening across the board throughout the West. Well, it's interesting too. It's like kind of organizations and shared ranches like Elk Creek Ranch, they've kind mm-hmm. of created this happy medium where it's still private ownership, but you have a way longer amount of river uh, private access. A lot of that's restoration, but it's not public access, but it almost feels like it because you have less pressure from public fishermen, just like you might feel in Montana. But can you tell right. me a little bit more about kind of the benefits of shared ranches and why we're seeing a little bit more of that um, when it comes to fly fishing properties? So a place like Elk Creek, which is a, a shared amenity ranch that we represent and have for the last seven years, 
This is a, a place in Northwest Colorado, hundred uh, percent private fishery, but they control upwards of 30 miles of streams. So that's the White River, Elk Creek, some other tributaries, some still water fishing in ponds and lakes, but it's hundred percent private, yet it has the feel because it's so expansive of a place like Montana where you can walk forever, right? I mean, you have right. 30 miles of stream and it feels like you're just kind of smack dab in the middle of it and you have all of it at your disposal. It's the best of both worlds because you don't get any public fishing pressure, right? Like you can do that in Montana and walk up and down as much as you want, but you might see, you know, another fly fisherman around the next bend. You might have boats floating by you, which, you know, that's all wonderful as well. Again, it, there's pros and cons to both of these, but Elk Creek is, is kind of something that emerged out of this phenomenon in Colorado of, of privately held water. And, you know, most fly fishing ranches in Colorado are smaller, right? They might own, uh, and when I say smaller, I mean, they're not owning 30 miles a river, relatively smaller when compared to elk, like an Elk Creek. If someone was to buy a ranch in Colorado that controlled 30 miles of river, this would be, a, you know, a hundreds of millions of dollars likely ranch. Whereas a place like Elk Creek has developed a new model for ownership where multiple owners, right, can own this property and enjoy the recreation and, and stewardship of the property and, and not have to deal with all of the pressures, right, public pressures that might go with that in a similar fishery in a different state. Right. So are there membership opportunities still available, Daniel? <laughs> Funny you should ask that, Ken. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, anybody that's interested in, in uh, this, this thing called Elk Creek Ranch, get in touch with me. Uh, we have a number of, of new listings coming on the market up there. I'm actually headed up there after we get off this call. Awesome. Um, Perfect. <laughs> and uh, it's a spectacular spot. And, you know, it, it takes some, uh, some discussion to fully understand it and comprehend the scope of it and how it operates. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, we have some availability up there for anyone that's interested. Well, and, and I, those... I want to touch on too, before, yeah. sorry, Haley, uh, yeah, you know, good. restoration in and of itself. And some people say, well, isn't mother nature good enough? And yes, mother nature is great, but over the years, just look at the West and there's plenty of books that talk about from irrigation projects to dams, to all these things that do impact rivers and fisheries, that restoration is a good thing for, for many things and sometimes necessary. And the contribution of private individuals, you said public, and I believe even some of our clients in the past, I think, uh, Dan, you worked on a project in Colorado where, mm -hmm. you know, they were trying to protect some in-stream flows and other things uh, through their efforts. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. Thanks for reminding me about that one. Um, yeah. In addition to, you know, just hardcore stream restoration, where we're actually you know, changing some hydrology of a river that might um, be helpful to habitat and, and low flow. There are, you know, other mechanisms and that we're seeing come up in kind of this more modern day of managing and, and looking at Western property. And, mm -hmm. and the case that Ken is referencing is a property that we help to sell uh, for an, a nonprofit organization called Western Rivers Conservancy. And I help them to, to market this property after they had done this kind of special pilot project where, you know, the, the water rights, um, this, this property was located in Southwest Colorado on, on the Little Cimarron River. And 
this gets into kind of a whole nother ball of wax, but we talk about over appropriation of water, right? Meaning uh, we're now in drought and uh, we've, everyone's got all these irrigation water rights coming out of the stream and wow, in a drought year, there's just not enough water to go around. And right. what happens then is the stream gets really low and we talk, you know, we've been talking about this throughout this whole call, but what Western Rivers Conservancy did was kind of this cutting edge concept of what we don't want to do is what we call buy and dry, which is taking a property that has a lot of water rights and just drying it up to keep the water in stream, because then we're impacting the whole, you know, agricultural ecosystem. We're no longer growing hay. We're affecting the viability and agricultural values of the ranch. So what WRC Western Rivers did uh, was they developed a tool whereby they would look at what the forecasted flows were going to be for that year. And if we were going to be in a drought year, they would have a calculation to say, we're going to need X amount of water to stay in stream. And in some years, it would be most of the water rights that the ranch owned would stay in stream to support fish habitat. In years where we had normal to high flow, uh, we weren't going to be as impacted and that water would be used to irrigate like it historically has been. But this was a like a legal instrument that they did. And there is a, a you know, a, a, essentially a deed restriction on this property that dictates in perpetuity how the water will be utilized on the ranch. And it's it's one kind of different way of thinking about how we might mitigate against drought. Another tool in the toolbox and also kudos to Colorado Water Trust. Yes. For really helping shape that too and work in it because we do a lot of conservation work within the group and uh, we know work with a lot of these entities around the West. And yeah, I mean, again, another like conservation easement, another thing, another tool in the toolbox. Yeah. For landowners to use at their disposal. Mm -hmm. And and did you see that kind of as a successful working on it? Did you feel like that could uh, like a pilot program that a lot of other landowners could possibly use in the future? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it doesn't it's not for everyone, right? And, and right. tool might not work for the next landowner or for that you know property and where it's it's located. But I think it can be something that landowners can use, and and you know the property successfully sold. So you know it it didn't completely diminish the value, right? Um, of the of the ranch, it was still considered a valuable agricultural property which is really what it was, you know, it's, it had a significant water right on this, on this stream to be able to irrigate. And, you know, the buyer looked at it and said, you know, I, I think I can live with this. And, and they had a little bit more progressive mindset that said, you know what, I think this is a good thing. You, you know, we don't, we don't need all that water all summer long. Let's keep some of it in stream because the part of the valuation of the ranch you know, was the ag, but it's also the fishery, right? So we right. were coming up with a balance. And yeah, I think it's really interesting to see how organizations and individuals are coming up with uh, with new ways in which to, to manage and mitigate, mitigate against these issues. I mean, Ken had one a couple summers ago where they were uh, leasing water rights downstream. Yeah, on the Cottonwood, part of the Green River, tributary to Colorado. But, you know, this is where you start getting into that nexus of water rights, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and fishing uh, and then fishery right because mm -hmm. you know so much of the water right laws are driven towards the irrigation rights and those rights are are they superior to the fishery component and the wildlife so you you know there's there is this 
connection that uh, people need to understand when they look at this. And, and again, there, it's not rocket science, but it, it is some of the variables are changing. So uh, understanding how those variables affect you and your land, your landscape and your fishery and your wildlife and your irrigation, all those things just come into play. And, and that's kind of what we're here to do, kind of help people understand that. And we did have a few questions just before I let you guys go, because I know you got to fly up to Meeker. Um, sure. But we did have one question that came in, um, and I, I think we kind of hinted on it while we were talking, but is it legal for a rancher or property owner to put a fence across a river mm. blocking yeah. boats from floating? That was one of the questions we got. Did they... Did they clarify what state they were wondering about uh colorado actually <laughs> okay they did um it depends like uh many of these answers will probably be it depends um so we talk about navigability right in colorado that's kind of how we we delineate some public water and the and being able to float it and e even that term navigability uh has different interpretations but for a, you know, trying to to provide a good answer to this question, if the if the stream is navigable, then no, a landowner cannot block float traffic from coming through. That would be illegal. If the stream is not navigable or it's kind of uh, questionable, that's where we would get into this. You know, where I've seen this before, when uh, a river is questionably navigable, I would say if if at any time in Colorado, if your raft or your boat is going to rub on the bottom of the river, I would not say that that river is navigable by Colorado state law. But if you can make it through that property without incidentally touching the bottom of the river or the side of the river, then no, then, then if you come up to a blockade and there's a fence or razor wire across the river, the landowner, you know, the landowner shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, there's could and should. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's and then that. there's legal elements and we're not going to sit there and project legal positions in a situation. I mean, in the end, there's laws of the West and there's a code of the West mm -hmm. in any of this, you know, they're, they're, like I said, you could do a lot of things, but should you? Eh, probably not. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it, it's that very issue sometimes that people do that causes that, like, uh, mm -hmm. I think, you know, in the last five years, somebody tried to do that up near Crested Butte and put, you know, a low hanging bridge or something to, to impede somebody's use of the river that then fostered some stream access users to say, look, we need to change the law in Colorado. So if you want to contest those things as a private individual, be careful what you're trying to accomplish because you might have the exact opposite result. Uh, <laughs> And I'd hate to say this, I, I have to, because I was a Russian studies major. It's like Putin saying, you know, hey, we're going to stop NATO, but, you know, with Ukraine. And look, now Finland and Sweden want to do it. So you, you, you enjoy NATO. I mean, you don't do certain things. So look at the code of the West in the end, right? Classic Rush, Russia. Yeah, yeah it's a nice plug. <laughs> Didn't you like that analogy? Yeah. It was yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, so, so this this article, um, and there may be other questions, but I just wanted to say that I, I wrote up this article in the last few days that tr I tried to just make kind of cut and dry. Here's, here's the stream access as you should interpret it in different states. But there's always something going on, right? This is a hot topic across the West. And you know, in Colorado, we've had a, a recent court case that 
The attorney general has now you know, recommended the Supreme Court hear this case. That's all about a private fly fisherman waiting on, uh, excuse me, a public pr- fly fisherman waiting on private ground. And so there are, there are nuances to this and the, in, the interpretation of the law, right, is yeah. it can be different. And, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't do that. I think it's just important to understand both sides of the story. And, you know, I think as advocates for landowners, you know, we are also advocates for uh, ecosystems and, and natural resources. So mm-hmm. those things go hand in hand. And I think it's important you know, as people take different positions, it's important for public fly fishermen to realize that private lands are providing a lot of habitat for Mm -hmm. not only fish, but for elk and all kinds of different wildlife, right? And, and they, and the public gets to enjoy some of that as well. And, And it goes the other way, right? It goes to the private landowner that there, there are things that the public are doing that are benefiting them as landowners. Let's take that, you know, Montana stream restoration. There's public dollars that are being spent to restore these streams that are improving the values of of uh, private landowners' properties. So it, it goes both ways. I think it's just important that people remember that. Well, and Haley, <laughs> there's a there's there's just a lot of different cases going case law right now, even right with uh, corner crossings on fences and that access to public lands through private, you know. There, there's always that, again, a, a little conflict between recreational expectations and rights of recreational users of property and public lands and private individuals. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of kind of our country and how we were created with public lands and, and all these things. And these these issues will never go away. Again, just going into being good landowners, being good public recreational users if everybody kind of does the right thing there's no problems it's just when people kind of push push the envelope sometimes this is what happens and with all these nuances it's really good to have a partner like daniel to walk you through the process and get to know these kind of fly fishing properties around the west and i'll let you finish what you were going to say yeah yeah well i think you know I, i i know we kind of need to try to wrap up a little bit and if there's other questions from viewers happy to take them but you know i think um, one thing I wanted to cover a little bit uh, that folks may be looking for is a bit of the market update, right? We've mm-hmm. talked a lot about what impacts value on on fly fishing ranches throughout the West, but where are we at as far as, you know, what's the market right now? Right. And um, it, the market is, is strong, right? Across the board, uh, the ranch market is maybe as strong as it's ever been. And, and Ken can speak to that like longevity piece of, you know, real estate is always cyclical, but we are we are seeing some unprecedented demand in the market right now. And again, this connects to everything we've been talking about. I think the influx of population throughout the Intermountain West is at an all-time high. You know, mm-hmm. we're seeing population rise in in all different areas of the West. And as that occurs, we're seeing more pressure on public lands and public resources and, and more demand for access to what may be deemed private resources. So, uh, you know, that ties into what the market's doing. You know, in my opinion, fly fishing properties are, are have always been the most scarce type of ranch out there. Absolutely. And and I think the valuation of them goes along with that. And, and that's no different right now. There's certainly scarcity in the market for quality fly fishing ranches. Not to say that they are not available. There are certainly ranches out there 
one thing that I think is important too in this conversation of where the market is, I think there is a lot of opportunity right now to to create value on fisheries. What may be viewed as, you know, the quote unquote B grade fishery. Okay, well, I think there are now opportunities to create that value and move that from a B to a B plus or an A minus fishery. And to kind of see the forest through the trees on that, I think there, there's a lot of opportunity in the market right now to find those types of properties where value can be built. It, it may take some patience to find the right one, but um, that's why you, you use someone like us that has their finger on the pulse of the market and, and can be opportunistic when those opportunities come up. Mm-hmm. A lot of it too, that we've been handling is off market stuff. So it really does require your knowledge of streams and rivers and communities and fishing and where to look. So we really appreciate you taking the time to go through all of this. And again, for those who are watching, Daniel did recently write a blog that we'll be sending out later this week. If you want to get it first before anyone else, reach out to us personally on our website, but I'll uh, let you get on your plane and get up to Meeker because I know you got some new photos and new listings to take, but thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been fun and uh, we'll do it again. Awesome. Thanks, Ken. Thanks guys. See ya. See ya. As always, you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter on www.murranchgroup.com. And as a subscriber of that newsletter, you'll get access to things like the blog that Daniel wrote. Um, If you have any other questions about fly fishing properties, please don't hesitate to reach out. We can be reached at 303-623-4545. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm Haley Murr. I made the episode today with the help of our head of marketing, Mallory Boyce. Big shout outs to our guests, Ken Murr and Daniel Carter. For more information on the ranch real estate market and other topics relating to ranch ownership, be sure to check out our website, www.murranchgroup.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening to the Land Bulletin Podcast. See you next time.